Open your hearts to pray with them now. O Lord, open my lips, that my mouth may declare your praise. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Call me Ishmael. So begins the novel Moby Dick by Herman Melville. I bring this up because I got to watch it again recently. The movie with Gregory Peck. Not the movie with Patrick Stewart. Though Patrick does a fantastic job, Gregory does it quite a bit better. Every time I see Patrick Stewart pretending to be Captain Ahab in Moby Dick, I think it's Captain John Picard playing around on the holodeck on the USS Enterprise. So Gregory Peck for the win. I love Moby Dick. I read it back in middle school. I was a bit of an overachiever. And it struck me how it wasn't so much or not just an adventure story about a bunch of whalers going after a vengeance mission for Captain Ahab to kill the white whale. It was also a theological treatise. Herman Melville was trying to describe some of what his beliefs were, and the text flows between the two opposing viewpoints of divine determinism and human choice. Do we, as free human beings, decide what it is that we're going to do with our lives? Or, instead, does God poke his head through nature and determine for us what it is that is going to come about in our lives? One of the things that makes it so easy for Melville to really get across his theological points is his biblical naming conventions. Ishmael! Of course, is our narrator telling us what happened during the voyage. He calls himself Ishmael, probably to elicit in our minds the qualities of the biblical character Ishmael. He's a wanderer with no tribe or people to call his own. He's a great hunter, a man of adventure, daring do. Our main character, Captain Ahab, is named, of course, after the wicked King Ahab of Israel who went over to other gods and worshipped them and did cruel, terrible things during his reign. Ishmael and Queequeg are warned before boarding the Pequod by a man named Elijah that all hands save one will be lost because of Ahab's vengeful mission against the white whale and therefore against God. I'm such a nerd, because when I read the passages for today, the first thing that I really zoomed in on were the naming conventions. Of course, biblical naming conventions are, are okay and interesting when they're being done in fiction, but within the Bible itself, naming conventions are all over the place. We have a story today about Moses. In fact, it's only the beginning of the story of Moses. And yet, within those first few paragraphs, we know everything that we need to about this character, who he is and what it is that he's going to do. He's part of the people of Israel, a people that for nearly 400 years has been enslaved 
in the empire of Egypt. And when in desperation his mother casts him upon the Nile in the basket, it is the Pharaoh's daughter, the daughter of the man who said, Kill the Hebrew firstborn, that draws him out, gives him back to his family, and then takes him again when he has been weaned and names him in the Hebrew tongue Moishi, which we pronounce in English Moses, to draw out. Already we know who this character is. Moses had been drawn out of the waters of death. The Nile spells disaster for the people of Israel, but Moses had been drawn out from it. And in another 80 years, he will return to Egypt from the wilderness to draw out the people of Israel from the oppressive hand of the Egyptian pharaohs to go out into the wilderness to worship their God. In brief, just from the character's name, we know who Moses is and what he will do. So important is the concept of naming conventions within the Bible that Jesus himself does one. Among his twelve apostles, there are many names, all of them significant, but one name, Simon, he draws out. When he's asking his apostles, who do people say that I am? They answer in the popular ways. They say, well, these people say this, and these other people say this. And he says, but who do you say that I am? And Simon, son of Jonah, says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Not all of the apostles necessarily believed that yet. So for Simon to pop his head up out of the group and go, I know, say something about his character. The willingness, the courage to say among his peers, I believe that you are the Son of God, and that is why I follow you. Says something profound about who Peter is. And Jesus says, therefore, you deserve a new name. You shall be called Peter. Now, Peter is the anglicized version of the Greek word that is translated from the Aramaic word kepha, rock. Kepha translated into Greek is petros, rock. And of course, petros translated into English is Peter. We call Peter rock. Jesus called Peter rock because of his admission. Because in that moment, his character, who he was, stood forth into something that he did, that he performed. He performed the good confession. Jesus Christ is Lord, and I follow him forth. How rare who we are and what we do mesh together. We live in an age of identity politics where who we are matters so very much. Some in our community rename themselves and try to help the rest of us understand who they understand themselves to be. It can be a daunting process, but it is important. 
as I watched my daughter go through their transitions into becoming the person that they're going to be, it can be frustrating sometimes. And as a father, I feel that my responsibility is, yes, to encourage them to be who they are. But more importantly, I think, to do the right thing. As Episcopals, we sit somewhere between Protestantism and Catholicism, and we recognize the validity of both, that it is important what grace through Christ has done for us, that we are saved not because of what we do, but because of who Jesus is and what he has done. But it's also very important what we do. We can't just cast our actions by the wayside and say, well, these things don't really matter. Our efforts to be righteous, our constant trials to not sin quite so much, these go hand in hand with our salvation by grace through faith. So when Paul writes different things that the members of the church can do, these actions that are based on our callings, he's not just talking about what we do, he's talking also about who we are. And his claims, his understanding, his unification of these two concepts is found in the person of Jesus Christ himself. Here I go nerding out again, but Jesus is is Jesus' name comes from the root Yah, which is the root form of the Hebrew word that they use for God. Scholars pronounce it Yahweh. For a long time it was written Jehovah. But essentially it's the unnameable name of the Lord, and thus is written that way in the Bible. The Lord, all capital letters, that's who Yah is. And then we add to the end, Shua, which means saves. The Lord saves. Yah, Shua, in Aramaic, which was the language that Jesus spoke. Yeheshva, in Hebrew, which was used mostly on ritual occasions. Jesus in Greek, which the New Testament was written in, and then later on in Latin, Jesus as well. And then as the faith moved northward in Europe, got picked up by the Germanic languages, Jesus, and then Anglicanized Jesus in England and later on in the United States. Jesus' name describes who he is, but also what he has done. The Lord saves. And he has. Each and every one of us has been saved by what Jesus has done and by who Jesus is to us in our relationship with him. And as followers of Jesus, we are called to do the same thing. It's easy to separate our ideas of who we are from what we do. Sometimes we do things that aren't really that great, and we go, but that's not really who I am. But if we are to be followers of Jesus, it must be 
What we do must be predicated on who we are, and who we are must be predicated on what we do. Whether we preach or prophesy, whether we save or destroy, these things that we do describe who it is that we are. And so character becomes very important to us as Christians. Jesus pointed at Simon Bar-Jonah and said, You, your character, your identity, is Petros, Cain, the rock. That is who you are. And on this strength of character, on this admission of faith, on this confession of who you believe me to be, I shall build my church. Hundreds, thousands, legions of people will follow your confession. You say, I am the Messiah, the Son of God. There will be an entire institution based on that reality. And here we are. I have a strange name. It's not really biblical, Gordon Cunningham. But it's mine, and I love it. And since I'm a huge nerd, I endeavored in my youth to find out what it meant. Gordon is old English for small, rounded hill. And Cunningham is Scottish for a broad plain. So I'm a small, round hill. Stand out, if you can't tell, by my heightened position. I was a professional minister for a while, and then I stopped for reasons. And now God keeps drawing me back. He says, Gordon, I called you to be a minister. You are a round hill on a broad plain. You stand out. You're a landmark, a guide. Something that others can see and hopefully follow. I can't be an engineer. I can't just be an Uber driver. God calls me to be more. God calls each of us to be more. To unify our identities and our actions. Who we are with what we do. Like Jesus whom we follow, whom we worship. We must be one. 